Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Today, we have the privilege of hosting Van Williams on Reimagining Black Relations podcast. Van serves as the Vice President of Information Technology Services and the Chief Information Officer for the University of California's vast $40 billion enterprise, spanning 10 campuses and six healthcare systems. In this role, he plays a critical part in shaping the university's IT strategy, collaborating with campuses and health CIOs, and driving key initiatives such as enhancing information security and advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Before his role, his current role, Van excelled as the Vice Chancellor for Information Technology and Strategic Initiatives at UC Santa Cruz. During his tenure, he led transformative projects, modernized campus system, and bolstered security, cybersecurity measures. With over 15 years of experience at New York University, including serving as the Chief Information Officer for NYU Stern School of Business, Van brings a rich background in finance, entrepreneurship, marketing, and liberal arts to his work. His passion for higher education as a catalyst for innovation and societal progress is truly inspiring. Then, welcome to Reimagining Black Relations podcast. Dr. Francesca Fajinmi. Hey, thank you so much for having me here, and I have been looking forward to this. Oh, it's so awesome. Now, for the records, everyone, Van is a colleague at UC where I consult. So there's more to just this conversation. So I just want to make sure everybody is aware of that. So Van, tell us a little about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, and anything you feel comfortable sharing about your background. Yeah, I am happy to. So I was born in the Bahamas. And I grew up, um, for the most part, in the Bahamas. I spent my summers on a tiny little island called San Salvador while I was there, a uh, population of about 900 people at the time. So, you know, it's about as tiny as can be. Um, when I was, uh, you know, in my preteens to, you know, um, teens, 12 to 13, I moved to New York City. And so, uh, you know, another island, right? Uh, you know, this time, this kind of island is the center of about 12 million people. So vast change. Um, everything that I feel like I've learned in life um, to be successful, you know, both as a teenager and as an adult, uh, really the underpinnings of it was that kind of sense of community growing up um, in the Bahamas, right? Um, you know, that need to be kind to each other, uh, to lend a helping hand to those that are that are in need, right? And, you know, also just kind of the, the need to have deep empathy because community doesn't survive that way. So that's kind of where I grew up. And then for a uh, professional purposes, um, I spent uh, 18 years at NYU um, in New York, working through um, all sorts of things related to IT. Um, some of that um, time was spent um, going out there and helping to build out academic programs. And then uh, I've been at the University of California for a little bit over five years now. Um, I've supported uh, both IT transformation work as well as uh, corporate engagement involving tech companies and uh, alumni engagement and alumni fundraising um, for our you know alumni who are in the tech industry as well. And so it's been a really happy confluence um, for me. That's amazing. So from Bahamas to the United States, how was the transition? Uh, it was night and day. Um, you know, the Bahamas is a predominantly black country. And uh, the notion that we have, you know, in America today about black pride, I don't remember kind of growing up with it. And um, partly because you didn't really need to have it. Right. You know, we were a a proud people. And, um, you know, and then I think I came 
to the United States and really for the very first time um, without knowing what it was, you know, got a chance to, you know, experience firsthand, um, you know, racism at work. I think this happened uh, probably when I was in eighth grade, I ended up um, going to a new friend's house, uh, took the bus, got off in the neighborhood, you know, had directions to walk to his house. And, uh, you know, very shortly after I got off the bus, you know, someone, you know, said, hey, and then they said, you know, come across the street, hurry, hurry, hurry. And I was standing next to a van and they were trying to encourage me to walk into an oncoming uh, bus that I couldn't see. And, uh, you know, after I didn't and I, and I you know, missed it, uh, you know, they threatened to beat my head in with a bat if I would ever come into that neighborhood again. And, um, you know, really at the time, you know, I thought this is the craziest thing ever, but I had not yet kind of connected it with racism. And it took, you know, a number of other events for me to kind of like, you know, establish it. And I think thankfully I was old enough at the time where it wasn't a, you know, deeply shaping moment for me in terms of my relationships and, you know, my ability to kind of have empathy or, to build up walls because I've kind of already grown up in a culture that was pretty strong, you know, but it's certainly basically, you know, kind of having grown up on it, it gave me a different light and a different view of, you know, what we all kind of experience um, depending upon what street we walk down on the, in this country. Something just crossed my mind as you were speaking, because I also, I was born in England and I didn't understand the concept of, you know, how they have the talk with the black male kids here that talk I had no idea what that was but now as you were speaking I'm like did you ever experience that because I mean you're coming from the Bahamas and you know there was none of those I mean if there's any talk at all it's probably be be a good boy behave yourself just normal stuff right so did you ever have the talk you know did your parents talk to you about that yeah so you know we definitely had lots of, of versions and variations of it and that talk manifests itself in in a lot of different ways, right? A lot of it is, you know, about the uh, the shrinking of self, right? It's, you know, not standing out, right? Um, not doing anything to to kind of call attention to yourself. Um, the talk manifests itself in, you know, even kind of like, you know, maybe more pernicious ways. When you go into a store, right? Make sure that you kind of like keep your hands, you know, in sight and, you know, where someone else that might be a white person may come in with their own bag and carry things in their own bag to the counter like you know you never would you know go out there and do it and uh so you know for me i felt like it wasn't you know the talk it was a series of ongoing talks and reminders and lessons that uh you know again um they definitely kind of bring a level of awareness and behaviors but they weren't things that you know i kind of naturally grew up with And so I think that um, I didn't share the deep sense of fear, which is really our anxiety, you know, that other folks that have been having these talks, you know, from a young age um, experienced. That is so true. So let me let me switch a little bit, Van. So you are an accomplished black male executive. How did you navigate that terrain to be successful while many others actually failed or they couldn't even get through, regardless of where you come from? How were you able to navigate the terrain? I would say that it's always really important. And I know that there is always a, a part of any level of success, which really kind of um, small part that involves you, right? Like whatever work that you've done. Uh, to kind of get there. Uh, I, I really like, you know, firmly believe the lion's share, if not 99% of it, right, is um, sure dumb luck. And uh, I remember, you know, hearing a stat that said, you know, if you kind of had five pieces of information, you know, about anybody, um, you know, it would give you insight into, you know, their kind of like likelihood to die at a certain age, uh, their, uh, you know, kind of income level and the quality of life um, and, you know, the opportunities that they have. Five pieces of information isn't a whole lot, right? Um, you know, one of them, you know, I think is, you know, the zip code that you're born in, right? You know, the other one might be your race or your ethnicity, um, your gender, 
right? I don't remember what the other two are, right? But you can kind of get the theme. And, you know, just think about that, right? You know, how lucky you have to be to kind of be in, you know, that really tiny range of attributes, right? To even be able to kind of get the chance. I think, you know, my luck, you know, was really kind of furthered uh, by being born to um, a set of parents who really, you know, placed the high value on education from a very, very young age, uh, being born into a family with siblings who also kind of like, you know, um, placed the high value on education as well. And so, you know, lots of, of kind of peer role models, lots of parental role models, you know, around it. And, um, you know, to be honest, once I moved to this country and I started, um, you know, going through uh, those early adult years of college, um, you know, that was a lot of sure dumb luck, um, you know, in excess. So, you know, I ended up going to NYU for undergraduate uh, degree and, um, you know, my MBA is also from from NYU as well. Uh, it was kind of on happenstance. I was dating somebody who happened to be going to NYU. I had gotten into uh, another school that I won't really name, but that the perception was that it was a better school. And uh, and I said, no, you know, I want to go where this person that I'm dating, um, where they're going. And um, it ended up being, you know, a very difficult decision because, you know, my mom really was committed to me going to this other place. Uh, it had financial implications. Um, it had implications in the sense that, you know, I ended up being homeless for a, a full semester and, you know, having to, um, you know, um, sleep in the basement of the library, um, having my girlfriend at the time steal food from the cafeteria to feed me uh, and showering in her dorm room as I was really trying to figure out how to get a job, how to, uh, you know, we pay for this college that I've chosen to to kind of go through. Uh, but those circumstances were were, were motivating. Right. Uh, and, you know, I got the first job that I was qualified for. I'd never had a job in my life. And that job was, um, you know, an envelope stuffer, right, at an admissions office. And that kind of like job changed my life. It was kind of transformative because they happened to have a major IT systems failure during the first couple of weeks that I was, you know, employed. And although I had never touched a computer, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't even checked the email in my life. Um, what was lucky was the person who ended up coming in to fix the uh, the challenge, that person ended up being transformative to my life. So they're still my best friend today, right? And they, um, you know, taught me a ton of things about, you know, IT. Um, they helped me to get, you know, um, a better paying job, which helped me to pay my way through college. And uh, kind of from then on, it's really just been a, series of being lucky to have mentors and sponsors who kind of cared for me, who've taken, um, you know, an interest in my career success. My MBA degree was a result of a scholarship that they invested in me and, you know, kind of provided so I could avoid the tax of tuition remission um, and, you know, go to school um, and travel the world, right, really effectively for free. And, you know, that I, I attribute to um, a dean at the time, a Jamaican, um, Peter Henry. Um, you know, it, it's really kind of just been a lot of luck. And for you to push through, let's take the luck, let's put that to the side for a moment. When people go through very difficult times, some of the instances you referred to, not a lot of people can get through. What was the motivation for you to get through that time? Let's leave out the outsiders, you know, that help you. But yeah. you personally, well, how did you get through it? Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, you can kind of look at this as either one of two ways, right? So one way is being, you know, from a culture of problem solvers or from a culture of hustlers, right? You know, yeah, either way, right? But they're the same, you know, basic things, which is like, there's a goal, right? And you need to kind of figure out a path forward towards being able to get that goal. And um, that path forward, that path forward isn't straight. So what it is is it's about you know going out there and conscientiously trying to create as many opportunities as you possibly can, 
right? And having a willingness, all right, and a fearlessness of going out there and taking advantage of those opportunities. And I will tell you that when you don't have a lot, it's really easy to be fearless, right? Um, it's also kind of really, you know, easy to be willing to go out there and pursue it. And I think a lot of this, you know, again, I, I don't, um, you know, want to pull away from the fact that like, you still have to be lucky enough to have these opportunities. And I, you know, I learned this when I was getting uh, my MBA, I went through an executive MBA program and uh, a number of the colleagues that I had in this program were, you know, fantastically wealthy. Some came from a family of billionaires. Some were uh, multimillionaires many times over. And what I realized was that folks that were in this kind of world, they had access to a network, you know, this network of people, this network of kind of institutions, these resources that in the worst case scenario, you know, for them would never, ever, ever, ever um, let them fail. And because of that, you know, there was, you know, not always a desire to succeed, right? You know, not failing was good enough, all right? Uh, for me, not kind of having a level of naivety and not even recognizing that these networks are out there, right? I realized I was like, wow, like the ability, the opportunities for um, for certain people in the world, right, that are in certain socioeconomic classes, right? You know, with those those kind of opportunities, you could do so much. Right. You could start a podcast and have, you know, two million followers right away just because you got connected up to the right production company and the right, you know, media set of things. And, um, you know, it is it is it's a circumstance of luck. You can bring as much hustle as you want. Right. As much experimentation as you want. But if you have the right circumstances and you bring that hustle and that experimentation, you know, it's an unlock. Oh, my, my. I, I wish we can keep going because, I mean, there's just so much to unpack from uh, what you're sharing, Van. But I want to switch very quickly. I want to ask you about um, your role as a technology leader in higher education. How do you see the potential for leveraging technology, AI, all of those new tools and buzzwords that we're hearing? How do you see how we can leverage uh, those tools to address and mitigate systemic racism, especially in higher education? Yeah, so the first thing um, to remember is that uh, you said this really magic word, and I and I love it, uh, and I love you for saying it, which is tools, right? You know, it turned out a hammer never built a house. And, you know, AI, right, is a hammer, right? And we can use this hammer to, you know, construct things. We can use this hammer to demolish things, right? But, you know, it is up to us to kind of go out there and use it. And I think the, you know, kind of question for me here has really been, you know, how are we going out there as people, as human beings, as organizations, as a society, right, as governments, and looking to go out there and address systemic racism, right? Um, how are we defining the problem, right? How are we defining the goals? How are we kind of measuring progress, you know, against those goals, right? Um, what are the initiatives that we feel like we need to kind of put in place and close the gaps on them? And, you know, from, you know, that simple kind of context, then the question really becomes, how do you apply these tools to each step of it, right? How do you kind of apply those tools to being able to define the problems? And, you know, can you use AI to determine, you know, where we have vulnerable populations, right? To determine what type of policies tend to basically be most impactful to progress or to equity, right? Um, and, you know, can we go out there and, use AI to even generate problem descriptions that we otherwise may not have been able to go and generate ourselves from the data sets that we have, right? And also kind of like, can we not use AI to do it? And it, we can't use it because we recognize that we don't have enough data. And so now we've identified that actually we need to invest more in getting data so we have better level of insights to kind of support this, right? Um, and then when we go out there and we kind of look at, you know, trying to define that target state, 
can you then use these tools, you know, these AI tools to do different versions of modeling to say, well, hey, if we ran this scenario and made this change, you know, what do we predict would happen? Right. And then can we then, you know, kind of optimize based upon that to say, okay, well, you know, this is probably what the right target state is. Right. And then when we start looking at and defining initiatives to be able to do it, if we decide that, you know, providing some level of, you know, access to venture capital funding to underserved groups, you know, is something that will really kind of help move that path out of poverty. Right. Well, you know, does AI become part of the training tool set um, that we use to kind of like um, develop new buildings or new businesses, not buildings, but businesses? Right. Um, can we then again use AI to, you know, help provide tool sets for them to more quickly create a business model? Right. And maybe one of the solutions is that we need to kind of invest more into uh, providing um, funding for underserved folks right and well then what is the optimal amount of funding for that initiative right are there kind of optimal ways of going out there and providing funding and then of course the metric side as we're measuring progress against all of this stuff right you know can we not do a better job of actually producing a set of analytics that are insightful but then also producing a narrative you know in a auto magical way that helps to kind of explain what these metrics mean right? What the trends are that we're actually seeing, right? And then maybe basically what we should expect as well. So I think there's lots of opportunities for it, but it has to be centered uh, around the people. It has to be centered around the organizations and the governments and, um, you know, really kind of not centered around the technology. I love that thought process because one of the challenges I have noticed since I've been having this conversation is we've been talking about it and you have DEI executives doing different things, is very qualitative in nature. The only quantitative piece is going to be, oh, how many disenfranchised groups did you hire? How many Black people, you know, one, two, three, I hired five out of 2,000 or whatever. That's about the only quantitative information that you get. But what you're now describing is that using technology, not only can you get really good quantitative information, but you can also get good qualitative information, which is not just having conversations, is predicting it based on historical information and also generating what you think may come out of it as a result of what has happened. This is really fantastic. This is interesting, Van. Are you following my thought process? Because you yeah. just brought a lot, you know, into the few minutes of you know information you just shared right now. I would say that not only am I following your thought pro process, but I want to go out there and plus one it for a second. If you think about from an organizational perspective, that we have this system and that system, you know, is inequitable, right? Well, we've already produced tools. We've already produced kind of diagrams that demonstrate what the system is for an employee, right? It's an employee journey map, right? And it talks about, you know, recruitment. It talks about um, before somebody gets onboarded, when they get onboarded, how they do performance management, um, how do they um, develop skills on the job, even when they leave, like, or, you know, like when they kind of like exit and then they're gone. Right now, think about that and then think about, well, what are the ways that you can kind of apply different sets of tools and technologies to reduce systemic bias? from the point in time that we go out there and we start recruiting for folks, right? So I have this lovely generative AI tool that is helping me to produce um, job ads. And it's helping me to produce job, job ads that you know have a lot of bias removed, right, from it. Um, it might be helping me to generate um, imagery around working here at the environment. And it goes out there and it generates imagery that are representative right, for the folks that we want to have coming in, right? Um, we have tools that might be scanning social networks and, you know, looking for folks that can really expand um, our diverse pipeline and doing work to kind of reach out, you know, again, in this auto-magical fashion from it. And I can, you know, continue to go through that process. I can look at when a person is pre-onboarding, 
right? You know, are there sets of data that we have in the systems and tools that work on that data that can say, hey, here are people that we recommend in the organization based on this person's profile to serve as a big buddy, to serve as an onboarding group. Um, you know, can the system go out there and actually recognize those people and then send messages letting them know, hey, this person has joined the community. They happen to be from the same neighborhood that you are, from the same country, from the same school, have the same sexual preference, whatever it is that we want to go out there and lay out, right? And nudge them to perhaps do some outreach, right? And then even when we go back out and the person is leaving the company, right? Are there ways that we can kind of build and expand the network so that those folks still have the opportunity to kind of help attract and retain talent as well? And they still get notified when somebody new might be coming in or when we might be trying to kind of yield folks and provide a support mechanism to kind of help them be successful in the company. So every stage you can apply technology, right? To remove bias, increase retention, you know, accelerate people's ability to be promoted, um, you know, highlight the great work that they're going out there and doing and increase the sense of belonging. Oh, I love it. I love it. How do we disseminate this or cascade this um, within the organization? Okay, so maybe you should speak about your respective area. How is this being cascaded so that we can start to leverage this? Yeah, so the, the key here um, for this is, you know, partnership, um, partnership, partnership. Um, you know, one of the, the challenges um, that I've seen, so we got a lot of advice from our, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion experts, right? Um, you know, we've volunteered within our organization to go out there and participate in a lot of the initiatives that engage with it. We bring together our community groups to kind of look at ways that we can put in place processes to remove bias. And these things are simple, right? These are things like um, rather than have uh, an, uh, an a manager go out there and nominate an employee for a promotion. Support the employee's ability to self-nominate themselves, right? Because if you do that, well, you know, the folks that may have been overlooked, you know, because they may not look like the manager, right? Or the folks that actually would have gone out there and uh, have been, you know, looked at too much because they do look like the manager, or act like the manager. We eliminate a lot of that bias. You put together, you know, these committees and, you know, this, these are things that we've done where we can say, hey, you know what? We have a group of people evaluating the case. It's not just a manager, right? And then we make it a recommendation. But you can't do that without kind of getting good advice from your uh, diversity, equity, inclusion team, without your HR team. Because even when you implement it, one of the things that, you know, somebody who's trained in this space may say to you is, hey, that system looks great. These are real world, by the way, examples. That system looks great, but you can't just go out there and create the process. It turns out that women, even if they have the process, they're more than likely based on research not to take advantage of it unless you go out there and normalize it by sending communications at a certain frequency to let them know that this is something that's normal. It's something that's expected, right? And so the implementation for it matters. And I, and I really truly believe that you know one of the things or challenges with being a chief diversity officer is you know, that role, um, it's really a layer and a consultant to a lot of other roles. And it really becomes up to leaders to kind of embrace it and look at, you know, how do we kind of like incorporate the learnings, the expertise and change the different processes that we have within our organization to, to take advantage of it. But they, they should not be drivers um, of change because they don't control any processes and they really need to be partners in change. The responsibility still lies on the heads, whether it's heads of department or organization, it still lies on them. But it's really up to them to embrace it, to, to start executing as recommended, or at least reach out for additional guidance on how to execute it. But I want to ask you, especially because you've worked in both public and private university system, how um, can institutions of higher ed collaborate and share best practices to collectively combat systemic racism? Yeah, so I, I'm going to answer that one, Francesca, but let me also just hit on the AI piece before I forget. And, uh, you know, I'll do a plug. So you kind of referenced that I've been doing a lot of AI work. So one of the things that I'm doing is co-sponsoring with our uh, provost for the University of California. Uh, an AI Congress, 
Um, that AI Congress has, you know, a number of different goals, but one of the things that, you know, is really kind of centered in that goals are how do we need to kind of change UC as an institution and higher ed, you know, as an industry to better support workforce development because we feel like AI, you know, it changes a lot of things. Means to be kind of a skilled expert, right? And how do we think about that? Uh, you know, one of the keynotes that we have is Sophia Noble, and Sophia's kind of work, um, you know, is really around um, racist and sexist algorithmic bias, right? Uh, you know, in search engines, right? But she's kind of all over the AI space, but she comes at it from this bias perspective. And, you know, part of the reason why we have her is because we can't really improve or strengthen workforce development, right? Unless we're actually going out there and we're strengthening it for for the people that are kind of the most vulnerable, right? For the folks that kind of are at most in need, right? And I feel like the strength of the society, right? The strength of an institution really is about how well do we go out there and support, right? And activate, you know, the folks that are most at risk and the folks that are most vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, kind of with that, uh, you know, I will get back, uh, you know, to the question around private versus public uh, universities and, you know, how do they think about, you know, addressing systemic bias, you know, kind of what's different, what's the same, where they need to go out there and partner. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, I think I spent 18 years, you know, at a private university. And I think it's important to note that, you know, elite private universities are in a different position than um, you know, non-elite private universities because elite private universities have a town-gown relationship that is different, right? Um, they kind of have a economic force that is different, and those, you know, that both the kind of economic power and the town-gown relationships are kind of a big part, right, of the university's ability to make a difference, right? Um, the nice part about them is that they have this level of autonomy. Right. Um, because they're not receiving any state funding that regardless of what the politics are, right, their ability to kind of execute really depends upon what their definition of what is right. Right. Uh, they also kind of have the ability to move faster. Um, they have the ability to experiment. Right. In a way that is really useful. And they also kind of have, you know, a certain sense of, you know, entrepreneurial spirit because they're always innovating to try to kind of, you know, improve their product to bring people up because if they don't get money from their students and their research, they don't, they don't exist, right? Um, that also kind of affords them the ability to bring in, you know, academics who are practitioners, right, into these leadership roles that kind of work with folks that are kind of purely practitioners, right? And that can really result in a lot of, you know, really wonderful things. All right. In the public space, um, we have, you know, a, a different set of dynamics. Um, one set I referenced before, which is that, well, you know, the politics of any given state, you know, has a huge impact um, on the funding. Right. And your availability to kind of invest in, uh, you know, educational content. Right. That leads to better outcomes. Right. Um, your ability to go out there and, you know, put in place recruiting mechanisms right, that may support kind of having a diverse, uh, you know, group, right, and even just your ability to kind of support from a cultural, um, you know, part on the campus, you know, building community and having these communities feel like it's safe to kind of get together, to speak, to be loud, be proud, uh, to be, you know, engaged. Um, that said, you know, having kind of a connection to government can be really, really powerful as well when that government you know, really is oriented around, you know, supporting society, which is what the role of government is, well, they're going to be aligned in helping you to do all those things that we talked about that a private university has to do. But you also have a relationship with policymakers, right? And the ability to kind of connect thought leaders in this space to be able to advise on statewide policies that have an impact outside of just that educational institution. Oh, I love it. I love it. So um, both both sets, they bring in some valuable uh, pieces of the pie together that will really 
get us to where we need to go. Because as you were referring to even public, you know, the collaboration, the, the kind of government, right? So being able to effect policies and leveraging that with what private, they can move faster, quicker, you know, and all that, bring that together. I mean, that would be phenomenal. How can we bring the two together? I mean, are you working with any uh, private institutions? Are you looking into that? Yeah, so um, my focus has been squarely on the UC um, since we've been here. And what we've done is try to kind of use UC as a platform to bring other folks in. So um, I sponsored uh, and we published a white paper around broadband equity um, where we brought together uh, folks from uh, the Department of Technology, the Department of Transportation, um, some of our academics that are, you know, kind of very deeply engaged in this uh, in this space, uh, policymakers, and um, you know, and then folks from our IT groups to really look at, you know, what can UC's role be, right, in helping to kind of support broadband equity, since we kind of know that having access to broadband, um, you know, also kind of unlocks people's ability to do a whole lot. It unlocks their ability to kind of get digital content, to engage in training, to participate in remote workforce opportunities. And um, that was really successful. It kind of opened my eyes to, you know, what the role that we can play both in partnering with government, as well as kind of influencing it, uh, how to kind of think a little bit differently around how to inform the legislator around what types of things might be supportive. And so that's kind of really where my energy, you know, is spent in. And, you know, the UC being such a huge you know, system with, you know, you know, some very large campuses like UCLA and Berkeley, you know, that is a, that's enough for me right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like a, it, it holds a state by itself because I mean, you have diversity across the board. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, I couldn't applaud you more, honestly, Van, it's so impressive what you're doing. I'm so excited about what you have coming on about the subject of AI in general. I know you've mentioned quite a bit, already, but can you provide uh, additional examples of some successful initiatives that you've been a part of that contributed to creating a more inclusive, equitable environment, uh, especially within technology, academia, um, you know, faculties, you know, all that, even in your space. Can you can you share a little bit? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So a lot of the, uh, the work that we're kind of spending on now is really engaged in our UC tech community. But we also kind of do, um, you know, what I'm now kind of calling, you know, intersectional groups work. So, uh, for instance, I participate as part of the UC Black Administrative Councils. And, you know, our kind of goal there is to really advance um, more Black leaders um, at the University of California. And so we do events, uh, podcasts, panel discussions. We try to, like, you know, help to provide models for folks that are aspiring and provide counseling and, and sponsorship and mentorship um, where possible and open up doors for each other. Um, within our UC Tech community, uh, our UC Tech community, let me define it for a second. Uh, we have about 9,000 IT employees uh, at the University of California. Uh, and that's 9,000 IT employees primarily that work within the central IT organizations. Uh, you and I both know that we're also kind of very federated, right? So if there's an IT employee that works, you know, in a group that's running, you know, payroll management, they may not get counted. If it's an IT employee that's working in a group like, uh, you know, supporting a small uh, school of of science, they may not be counted, right? So the group gets even bigger. And then we have the set of folks that we don't think of as IT people, but I believe are. So for instance, we have uh, communications people or marketing folks who are building out websites and, you know, doing HTML code and, you know, kind of doing scripting. You know, we claim those as tech folks. We have, you know, data analysts who are doing, you know, SQL work and, you know, um, very advanced, you know, reporting and data visualization, maybe even statistical modeling. We claim them as tech people, right? Uh, even the, the financial analysts that are kind of doing advanced Excel modeling, right? And they're kind of programming their workbook. We claim them as tech people. And, you know, that community, I believe, is huge. And so what we've done is we've really invested in developing that community by um, putting on programming. So we have a conference now that's called the UC Tech Conference. 
Uh, and we um, have been growing and growing and growing um, that conference and increasingly using that conference to start to segment out different groups. So one of the groups that has spun off of that has been building out a UC Tech Black Excellence community. And then I think, you know, I've talked to you about the UCIT, which is the, you know, primary IT team that's supporting all of the University of California, you know, and a lot of that work is really kind of um, about process design, right? It is how do we go out there and look at our processes to ensure that when we go and recruit, is everybody from our department being trained and having um, bias training? When we go and recruit, do we have a set of shared um, content of sites that people can leverage to recruit for where they're able to reach, you know, women in tech, you know, where they're able to reach, you know, uh, you know, black or Hispanic or, you know, other folks and having them engage. And it's really, you know, very much a process optimization exercise, right, where the optimization outcome is increasing diversity, increasing equity, increasing representation. You are speaking my language. I'm loving what I'm hearing. How are you spreading the word? I mean, does everybody know about this? How how are you getting engagement from the parties? Um, what I've done is I've looked at the different Black leaders that are um, running communities that already exist. Um, so we have Black at UC, and we've partnered together with them to really bring them into the UC Tech world. You know, we have our UC Black Administrator Council. We partnered together with them to go out there and expand opportunities for it, um, engaging with our chief HR officers and then kind of partnering with them to make them aware of our UC Tech community and to kind of co-create innovation work, um, partnering with some of our admissions officers. So the, the one that we kind of have in the cooker right now is expanding our UC Tech community. We talked about all the uh, full-time employees that we support, right? So, you know, tens of thousands of those. Well, you know, we likely have tens of thousands of student employees as well, right? Many of these Pell Grant students, many of these underserved students that all have tech employee jobs, how do we then become a platform where they have and they can use us as a sense of belonging, as a tool for career advancement? And then how do we kind of take that infrastructure? This is why we're partnering with our admissions uh, colleagues. How do we take that infrastructure, design it in such a way that when we go out there and we recruit these students, we can say to our black, you know, kind of students, hey, if you come to the UC, here's this opportunity that you kind of have that you wouldn't have anywhere else. You get the opportunity to kind of work at multiple comp um, campuses, get mentorships in computer programming and data analysis and AI, be able to get access to tech tours at Facebook, at LinkedIn, at Microsoft, at Google, right? And, you know, the the name of the game is impact. And what we're really trying to do is recognize that technology is adjacent to every other area of our business, right? And it means that we can align them all to kind of create a greater impact for our students, to greater, create a greater impact for society, you know, by just kind of leveraging these relationships that we already have. That is so amazing. I don't want to overlook the power of networking that will come as a result of this, right? Somebody just coming from one of those zip codes, and then you have access to this vast network, it is phenomenal. I know I said I'm going to get you out before the, the end of the hour, and we're approaching it so quickly. But then, if you need to speak to young Black people about some of these things, you know, some of the things you've experienced, how you got here, what you've seen in the future, what would you like to say to them? Address them right now. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the one thing that, um, you know, I really kind of care a whole lot about is being able to help them to understand, you know, what is, uh, you know, within their circle of influence, right? And, um, you know, what is kind of within their circle of control, right? Um, that's really, really important. And, you know, you want to be able to kind of make sure that everything that's outside of it, right, um, to the best of your ability, you don't spend your time on, right? Um, things that are within your control or the things that you kind of know right? The things that you can kind of signal to people that you know, things that you're interested in knowing, things that you're interested in doing, right? And uh, investing in yourself on those things by itself, you know, there's a strategy for that, right? Um, one part of the strategy is trying to really go into industries that have a lot of money or that are growing really rapidly, 
right? That's like the single uh, most important step that you can kind of think about, right? So for me, I always advise, you know, look at uh, food and agriculture because, you know, it's going to be a revolution. Um, look at healthcare, right? Because we, not just that we have an aging population, but, you know, we have so much need even for if the population wasn't aging, right? Um, go out there and actually look at education, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean working in higher ed, but, you know, we have a set of forces that are at play, AI being one of them, that is kind of constantly creating a need to retrain, right? To kind of reskill just in order for us to go out there and survive. And so there's a lot of innovation in this space to be have both on the industry side, as well as, you know, kind of within the higher ed side proper. Um, once you kind of know what the industries are and you're kind of really thinking about ones that are growing, um, center yourself around not developing one skill set, um, but at a minimum, develop two distinct different set of skills. If you're going to do computer programming, well, learn how to go ahead and do art or music, right? If you're going to be, you know, a data engineer, well, learn how to do you know, industrial design, right? Um, it's really, really easy for somebody to go and find a computer engineer or a computer programmer and say, hey, you know what? You lost your job or moving over or outsourcing your work, right? When you're a person who has this role that really is kind of bringing something unique to it because you're combining these two sets of things, your job becomes a lot harder for you, for anybody to go out there and replace and they recognize your value. It also helps you to advance within the organization a lot more because you get recognized um, for being distinct from others and your peers. And if you have the ability to do it, learn three distinct skill sets, right? Because that actually makes you really irreplaceable, you know, for it. So, um, you know, the other part, we talked about that, you know, kind of sphere of influence, um, other activities, you know, constantly work to kind of increase that sphere of influence, um, develop the relationships. Make sure the relationships that you're developing are not just in your community, right? Um, you know, try to reach out. If you were a techie person, reach out to women in tech and figure out how do you become, you know, an ally, right? Or to the Appy community and how do you become an ally, you know, there? Um, you know, try to figure out if you are uh, a student employee, how do you take advantage of these employee networks and employee resources? If you're an employee, how do you go out there and tap into the alumni networks or the alumni resources that you may not necessarily think are available to you, but grow that sphere, um, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about it because you want those friends, right? You want those mentors, you want those sponsors, you want those relationships before you need them. Do I love that or not? Wow. So grow that sphere of influence as well and outside of your community, right? because it's not just your community that will be able to help you and grow them now, not when you need them. Begin to nurture them now. That's phenomenal. Thank you, Van. Is there anything else you would like to share that I've not asked you? Um, you know, I, I will say one thing. I feel like, you know, my undergraduate degree was in classics. So, you know, actually speaking to that, you know, diverse points of, uh, of things. And classics, if you don't know, is really the study of Greek and Roman civilizations, language, literature, history. And, um, you know, I think I've kind of come to a perspective around race, you know, a lot um, with that in mind, right? You know, history kind of has both a rhythm and a rhyme that we you know, we see the beat playing all the time, right? You know, we hear these things kind of resounding around it. And, you know, what I realize is when I look at, you know, where we are in this country, being Black in this particular country, right? It is this kind of unique confluence of colonialism, of colorism, you know, of culture. And, you know, I don't believe that it's like anything else that we've seen, right? If you, you think about being Black, in the UK, well, they brought black people into an existing country where they had to integrate into the systems, right? Um, you know, in our country, we were brought into um, a system that didn't really exist, right? In fact, the system was kind of defined on our backs, right? 
And for a long time, the system wouldn't have existed, wouldn't have been supportive, right? You know, if we didn't have these, you know, incredibly broad, strong backs that were supporting it. And I think that this, because we are so unique, right, um, we need to kind of also recognize that the solutions that we kind of have here also need to be unique, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we, you know, should not be going out there and looking at, at history for, ins for inspiration um, and for, for rhythm and for, for kind of like the rhyme that we kind of can see. But I, I do feel like there is something that is unique about us in this country where you don't have a strong social net or a strong healthcare that we have to think creatively. And I don't have any answers around it. Uh, I just kind of know that, you know, I think it is a place that, you know, if you were thinking as an innovator, all right, or you're thinking as an entrepreneur, you would have a greater chance of success um, for moving the needle than if you were going out there and you were thinking about this from, you know, an economist perspective or a sociologist perspective or a psychologist perspective. It's a different level of thinking that you need to really move the needle on the front that we're in. And I think that's about it. I know it's not helpful, but it's what's on my mind these days. That is super helpful, Van. And actually, I would like, Van, if it's okay with you, I would like us to have a second go round. And I would like to actually pick it up from there because that's actually quite insightful. Because most of these conversations about, you know, Black people as is usually from the standpoint of social issues, economics, and all that, not so much from creativity, innovation, and looking outside the box, right? It's almost like we feel confined to this box. But you saying that, no, check outside. There's some other things, you know. I would like to take that further, if that's okay with you. Uh, sign me up. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. Then I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing this journey with us. I truly appreciate you being my guest today. It means a lot, man. So I just want to uh, say- The pleasure you. is all mine, Dr. Francesca Finjimi. You know, uh, I can't wait until next time. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of you, our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any questions or feedback, please email me at Francesca at yourblackmatters.com. I want to thank you again, Van, for this opportunity. It's a contribution we make into our history, and I'm so excited you are a part of it. Thank you so much. God bless you all. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. I mean, the Lord bless the United States of America and the Bahamas. Don't forget. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye.